Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Should you have a baby or should you not have a baby? That's a question many people find themselves asking these days. Approximately one in eight couples are affected by infertility in the United States. That's about 6.7 million people each year who have trouble conceiving. But is having a baby the right thing for you to do? I mean, are you wanting to get pregnant or conceive and have a baby because you have that inner wanting of nurturing another human being? Or is it because... You're just doing it because everybody else is doing it. And if you don't do it, then something's probably wrong with you. In this episode, we'll be talking to actress Heather Downling. She is the creator, writer, and performer of the one-person show, Fertile, a conversation about the expectation of procreation. She's won many awards for Fertile. She's also going to be performing it once again, at the White Fire Theater, but it's going to be a virtual show on May 20th. And you can go ahead and click on the show notes and purchase tickets to watch it. It's an amazing show. I saw it last year in 2020 and absolutely fell in love. So this is a really fun conversation between Heather and I, and we have so many serendipities. So you won't want to miss this episode. to Nurses and Hypochondriacs. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's about time. I'm so glad I get to come play with you. I know it. Like we were kind of chatting before. Um, The last time we saw each other was at the end of 2019 at our favorite wine bar, Maribel. Maribel in Valley Village. Valley Village. That's right. I love that place. It's a great place, you guys. When you're listening to this, they may be open. Yeah, so you should look into it. Yeah, well, I think everybody's going to be open by June for indoor dining here in Los Angeles. Uh, in the desert in Palm Springs, are already doing indoor dining, so it's like pretty much back to normal. But it's just Los Angeles for whatever reason. Trying to be cautious. Trying to be cautious. We'll see. We'll see. Cool. So. I just want to talk about how we met because we're going to be talking about your show, Fertile, a conversation about the expectations of procreation, which is going to be, you're going to be performing it again via Zoom, correct? At the White Yeah, Fire it was, Theater. it was a, it's a live stream that's produced by White Fire Theater. And uh, it's the, what they've set up there for live streaming live theater is pretty incredible. So yeah, it was chosen as the best of best for the solo fest, um, solo show festival that they do at white fire every year and they found a way to bring it to life virtually so yeah it'll be uh streaming at 7 p.m pst on may 20th okay super cool and we're going to put the link at the end of this show so uh people can go ahead and link up and uh, purchase tickets to your show and watch it because i i loved it when you did it last year i absolutely found it very relatable it's great 
I loved how you did all the characters and we're going to kind of dive down on how, well, I mean, we met through doing shows. We met yeah. at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. Uh, 2015. That's yeah. right. Uh, it, that was an interesting time because I had I knew nothing about production and I was doing uh, nurses and hypochondriacs, a storytelling portion of the show. And I didn't know what I was doing. It was pretty much a mess. <laughs> but but going to the networking events really helped and meeting you and your husband really helped. Was that your first time uh, doing a one person show? It was. And I had the same kind of experience where you're saying I had, no, I had no idea what I was in for and I didn't know what I was doing. It was the same. It was the same thing. It was definitely a leap and the net will appear kind of moment because right. I had the only theater I'd ever done in the, before that had been ensemble theater. And it had been decades since I had done any of that that was really uh, meaningful. So it was like, I think I'd done one show since I'd been in LA. So that would have been, I don't know, like four years before that. So yeah, it was, it was a wild rodeo of relationships and discovering new talented artists and discovering outside the box creativity in terms of the stuff that was showing up on shit stage. I mean, your show was amazing and you got so much traction from it. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was really interesting because, um, like I said, it was very much a beta test of sorts uh, to see how people would react to it. And uh, the a lot of the audience that came found it very relatable, you know, and yes. were starting to share their stories. And that's how I saw that there is uh, not only a an educational component, but there is a, a very much a healing component as well, which I think that your shows have done for you. So yeah, you know, 2015, 2015 was unemployed finally, right? And right. that that show was all, you know, when I talk about it, the way I describe it, it, it's, I had been pretending to want a real job and career since I was 14 years old, all the time in denial that who I was as a performer. And that, you know, as I approached 40 here, I had this opportunity to do what I always wanted. Right. And um, so unemployed finally was all about what it looks like when that, you know, what you want and you already have made up your mind. You can't have it. So what do you do in the meantime, like that? And of course it also hit on major life events, in those times. Cause it was like 14 to 40 basically. Um, but yeah, and it was it, it, what you're saying, I really relate to, cause I couldn't believe how many people came up to me and either said that it gave them the courage to finally, to finally start talking about what they wanted to do or about how they felt so worthless because they'd had so many different jobs and not been at successful different things. And now they're seeing that it's just cause they weren't trusting their own instincts on what they should do. Or, um, it was amazing, but that, as I, you know, sent you some, some info about that, that's also where Fertile came from. So my new show. Right. And you just answered my question, but before your show, before you started performing, uh, you were in the corporate world, right? Oh yeah. My last, my last, I always call it real job, which is kind of ridiculous. Cause I've never worked harder in my life than, than I am now being a working writer and actress is like, I've had to be more focused and self-disciplined oh than God, any, about it. Yeah. anything. <laughs> so, but my, my last real job, I was the director of operations for a legal services company that did document retrieval for law firms and insurance companies that were in the middle of claims litigation. So I was dealing with attorneys, paralegals, claims adjusters, and courts 
and healthcare facilities when HIPAA was being introduced, the Privacy oh, wow. Act. Yeah. That that's what I did. And at one point I was managing uh th- four different offices in three states with about 40 employees. Oh my gosh. So and I say that and it's like <laughs> why was I doing that to myself? <laughs> but that, that's what I was doing to make a living before, before all of this. <laughs> right. So why were you doing that? Was it like a society thing you think? Did you, I mean, cause you weren't really pursuing your passion or were people saying you can't make it as an actor acting? What, why would you do that? You know, do you know, I flat out by the time I had graduated from high school, any idea of doing anything creative for a job was dead. Me too. How funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's a thing you do for fun if you have time, but that's not something normal people pursue. So, and, and I don't even hold it against anybody because listen, it takes something to make it. So there, it it is as hard as everybody says it is. Absolutely. It is, but it is possible. But so, you know, not to put any, you know, I don't blame anyone. I mean, I remember my high school guidance counselor, it's in unemployed saying to me, well, you know, you could minor in the theatrical arts if you want, but boy, oh boy, what could we focus on? And she kept pushing me towards (laughs) journalism or journalism or whatever, because I did love to write even then too. Um, but yeah, I just gave up on it. And the thing is, is that then it just led, I mean, that's why that first show even happened. It was my brother-in-law when I, so I had been working remotely for this last job when I first got to LA until they could replace me in that position with somebody there. And when I, when that job went away, I found myself unemployed for the first time since I was 14. I had never not had at least one job, if not more to make ends meet. And my brother-in-law was like, didn't you always want to be an actress? Didn't you want to write? I mean, isn't that kind of what you wanted to do? And so that it was literally the first time when I had by then had well more, I mean, at that point, I think I'd had 35 different jobs over the course of my life and wow, not joke. Cause at any given time I'd have at least two. Yeah. <laughs> and, and usually I'd have some small business that I was also trying to get like a work from home business because I, I knew I could never make the kind of income I wanted at my regular job. Right. So I was always like trying to hustle and create other things, but, um, that was the first he really was the one who said, you know, you could write a show about all these crazy jobs you've had, the stories you've told me about your bosses and your employees. hundred percent. <laughs> Timothy Dowling, screenwriter, brother-in-law extraordinaire was the one who got me. And I, I laughed at him like, you're, you're insane. I'm like, I'm closer to 40 than I am to 30 right now. I can't start now in this career. You're a crazy person. And here we are. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. I I mean, my story is so relatable to you. Same thing. I've always had jobs ever since I was 14, sometimes two jobs. You know, I was always like involved in theater or swim team. Like I played the nurse in uh, Romeo and Juliet. You know, I was always in photography. I loved photography. I was always in AP English, you mm-hmm. know, and all these things. But once I went into college, I threw them all away you know, and it was weird. Like I took a communications course just because it was a prerequisite. And I was just like, and I, and I took speech and I kind of liked it, but I was just like, eh, you know, and then they were having like auditions for the theater. I, I went to 
Pasadena City College for community college. That's where I started. And um, I was, I was so, I remember going to the auditions, but I didn't have a headshot. So I took my headshot <laughs> from like um, photography class. You oh know, my gosh. Did. And it was just like, I just was so, it, it was just weird. And then I left, you know, I had to go to work. So I was like, oh, screw this. This is, you know, a waste of time. And I shut that part of myself down. And I remember even when I got married to my ex-husband and once we had bought our home and we were kind of getting settled in and I said to him, you know, I'd like to do some community theater. And he's like, what for? You know, <laughs> I, okay, you and I have so much in common. It's freaking me out because listen. So one of the other important grown-up jobs I ended up having was when I was married to my first husband, who I'm not with anymore. And where I was living at the time, I decided once things got settled to get involved in community theater. Exactly the same. Well, what happened was I got so I got so excited about that and so involved in that 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 became all of my free time. Uh huh. He didn't love that. Right. Cause it wasn't his, it wasn't his thing at all. Right, and so, right. and, and then, you know, by the time we weren't going to make it anyway, but by the, by the time we broke up, you know, then I really had to support myself because I had all this debt from our, our divorce and all this stuff. Right. And uh, so then it, like you said, I just shut it down. I was like, well, that was fun for a minute. I'm glad I got to do that as an adult and we're done now. And I didn't, I honest to goodness, if you had asked me after that, if I would ever be on stage again, or I would ever try to act again, I would have laughed. Yeah. And so it's, it's so surreal to me that my life is what it is right now. I mean, it's, I, I really think, I don't, I don't believe in meant to be like, I don't think our life is mapped out and that predictable. I think that in every given moment we have a choice, but I think always I have been divinely guided. Yeah. Like, this is what you're, you should do. Yeah. What you love. And I, there's been, there's always been the push, right? Like, when I was writing for the newspaper, I won awards for my newspaper writing when I started indulging the issues impacting community and writing for the arts. And like, that's yeah, when I, yeah. so I think, I think it was always where I was supposed to, to, or that my heart wanted to go. And it just, it wasn't until we moved here for my husband, Mike's career, that it even seemed possible up until then, it just, it never even seemed, and even then, frankly, it didn't, like I said, I laughed at my brother-in-law. I thought he was insane or drunk or something. And, uh, it, it was just like one step at a time after that until pretty soon. Now it's my, I mean, my life is writing and performing, empowering other people to do the same and yeah. auditions. That's my life now. Yeah. And that, and that's so awesome. And you know what, being on Los Angeles, yes, it is. You can, it, there is tons of opportunities here, tons. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up with my dad at the age of four, taking me across the street to watch the incredible shrinking woman oh. being filmed that was being filmed in Eagle Rock. You know, that is that so cool. And I remember as a kid that this is what it looked like to me that these production, this production company took over all of Eagle Rock. And if you watch the movie, like I haven't seen it in a while, but I have to watch it again. You can see it. It all takes place in Eagle Rock, you know, which is a little community. Uh, but but I remember that and I was so in awe, you know, and uh, both my brother and my father have worked uh, for the motion picture industry. And oh, wow. uh, you know, so going on set was normal. I've been a, a nurse on set um, because I was like, oh, this is an opportunity. This is kind of neat. But 
as far as writing goes, like I always had an itch and I've told this before on the show. Um, and I was having a lot of burnout and, and I told great stories on the units and I was telling stories of the guys that I was dating because they were all wacky and, uh, and the nurses loved them and they would come back and, and they would be like, Hey, can you tell me another one of those stories? You know? And, uh, and then I found the right place for me, which was a writing mm-hmm. pad at the time to go and be creative in a space that I felt was non-judgmental because it was taught in the Amherst method. And that's how I teach my storytelling classes. Um, and, and it was a comfy area. There were couches or amazing Hollywood people and non-Hollywood people, you know, and a lot of the people that took those classes are now producing, Woo-hoo. you know? doing stuff which is awesome and that's what you should do if you take classes <laughs> yeah right that's kind of the point out there and produce if it's not just one thing you have to do at least one like get published you know create a one person show I mean and that's where my one person show started uh the nurses the nurse in the hypochondriacs and then that's when I met you at Yay. The place, which was a great place again because at that time a lot of the the classes that you would take, not the classes, but the um, symposiums that they would have and to teach you how to produce were free. Yeah, I gotta give Hollywood Fringe, <laughs> I gotta give Hollywood Fringe credit. The, the, what they set up to have performers and producers be successful at Fringe is amazing. I mean, they really do work hard to connect the community so that you have resources around you. They do a great job of going through the basics, everything from budgeting and technical issues and marketing and how to best work for instance. I mean, they really, I I have such a deep respect for the way the Hollywood Fringe Festival has been run and what they've done to to support artists. And um, I'll be really excited to see what they come up with now that they're doing sort of this hybrid this year of like live performance and virtual performance with, you know, balancing out the virus. So yeah. I'll be cheering them on. I'll be cheering them on. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's go ahead and talk about fertile and how yeah. you came up with the idea of doing that show. It's a great show. I mean, you, how many characters do you do again? The characters are amazing. And this in fertile, in fertile, I do 11 um, in unemployed. Finally, I did 39 So that's where I really, yeah, that's where I really got the reputation of, wow, she is a character actress. You are really good at character acting. Let me talk. (laughs) Thank you. Um, The irony of it is, and this is an absolute true story. If you talk to my mentor, coach, director, Jessica Lynn Johnson, who is the founder of Soaring Solo Studios, she will tell you that the first time I had a private meeting with her, because I'd been going to her free classes. You were talking about a safe space to practice writing. Yeah. That's what I found in her free classes and stuff started to come up. And my crazy brother-in-law's idea kept percolating in my head. So I was like writing all these notes. So my first one-on-one session with her, I sat down on her couch. I looked at her and I said, okay, I've never written anything for stage. Everything I've done has either been um, fictional narrative to entertain myself, or it's been journalistic. So I have no idea what I'm doing. And I am not a character actor. I don't play characters. So we have to find some other way to make the stories interesting. And she was so great because she knew I was an actress. I mean, I was, I had, you know, I had told her the stuff I had done on stage and she said, well, let's just keep writing and see kind of what comes out of it. Like what voices show up, who wants to show up, make an appearance. And she just let, she was like, let's just see, let's just see. She, that is like, she's like a shaman. She I'm, was, I'm telling you, she's like the solo show. Like shaman. Yeah. She yeah. just let it, 
She just kept gently. And before you know it, and we never counted, but all of a sudden when we're getting ready to premiere at Fringe, she said for the marketing, she's like, let's talk about all the characters you do. And it wasn't until we sat down and counted it that I was like, holy crap, how did you get me to play 39 different? I still don't know how she, honest to goodness, I'm still in shock. It's like she created an exorcism. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Wow. It's true. You're holding all those people in your subconscious. And they came out. And they came and, out. And, and so, didn't you have like a, a birth, like a rebirth on the stage? Like, weren't you a totally different person after that show? Happened? Yeah. I mean, it, there's like something healing that happens when you take the show and when you like, you know, just. hundred percent. hundred percent. Because you, well, so when I got done with the run, so unemployed ran for about two years and the last the well the last performance was LA Women's Theater Festival but that was a, a portion of it but the last full performance was on 42nd Street in New York City as part of United Solo the largest solo festival oh in God, the world awesome and I just remember being standing under the stage door sign on off Broadway and thinking you know 10 year old Heather would die of happiness right now. Cause that, that, <laughs> that like being anywhere in that neighborhood for me yeah. was like such a dream when I was a child. So not only was it cathartic for me, kind of completing the past of not having honored being the performer and being the creator that I was, the creative that I was, but it was also, it also reintroduced me to myself as a performer and an actress and also as a writer. So by the time I walked away, I felt comfortable that I could own that and keep going. So in unemployed is when the subject of my, my husband and I, the trouble we had, the infertility we ran into when we were trying to start a family. And it was like maybe five minutes of unemployed finally. And that was by far the thing that got the most feedback, questions, commiseration, comments. I had so many people come up and start to share with me stories. And so often they would start with, I've never told anyone this, but... And that made me so sad. I was like, wow, the shame that women and couples carry around over the trouble they've had starting families is heartbreaking because it's such a, it's such a difficult personal thing to experience to feel like you can't talk about it and that there's something you're supposed to hide or like you're failing at something. And it really, it really just kept tickling at me that it wasn't okay with me that we couldn't just have open conversations about the issues of infertility and family planning and all of that. It just, and it took me almost four years to write it because it was such a, it's such a thick, weighty, important topic that I, I felt like I had to get at the bottom of it from a lot of different point of views, not just what I went through, but I had to have a really clear picture of what other people went through to, to be able to tell it. So did you do research? I mean, did you ask other people? I mean, how did you, what was, I your, interviewed, what was your creative process? <laughs> <laughs> I Well, some of them were anecdotes of stories I had heard along the way. Like there's some stories about adoption that of people in my own life I'd experienced before, long before I was ever going to write a show, but they always stuck with me because of the stories that they were, right? But then I interviewed more than 25 uh, women and men actually about their, their issues with starting a family or even just their issues with parenthood. Like now that they are parents, what have they discovered juxtaposed against back when they wanted kids and what the, you know, what the reality of it has been like for them versus what they imagined and the good and the bad. 
right? Um, so I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad stuff because it wasn't, but it, I just, I interviewed so many people and it started to fill in. First of all, my, my suspicion that people are not supporting each other and telling the truth about what they're dealing with and that women in particular feel so alone in going through it. And then they take it as such a personal failure. Um, and it was also really eye-opening to hear some of the stories from men because I knew how hard it had been on, on my husband, but hearing kind of the experience of being left out of something that was so important, like the problem was with the woman, she was having to go through treatments or whatever, the, the husband or the partner having this feeling of helplessness and uselessness and, and wanting, wanting a family just as badly and having so little to offer and even worse if the problem lie with them. Right. So it was just, it was heartbreaking. And then I, and it was the other thing that was shocking is how many women have miscarriages and don't feel like they can talk about it. And, you know, I'm like, man, we have got to break up the stigma and the shame around this so that women can begin to be open and vocal and understand that these things are sadly normal. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's, it is a very regular, normal condition that things happens all the time. And that, you, you don't need to hide it. Cause guess what? Your next door neighbor will be so happy to hear that you've been through it too. Cause she feels alone also. So I just, I wanted to break it up and I wanted to do it in a way that didn't, I wanted to do all those interviews. Cause I didn't want to draw conclusions. I didn't want to pretend like I had an answer or there was some right way to do it or some wrong way to do it when it comes to starting a family or dealing with fertility. I don't, cause I, I don't have those answers, but what I do know is you've got to arrive there for yourself and get complete about it to really make a choice. And I was able to do that. And I wanted this show to be an opportunity for other people to start to get there, to start to explore and think about things maybe they hadn't thought about, to start giving themselves permission to find what is right for you. Because no one has a right to tell anyone how they should, shouldn't, or are supposed to start a family. No one has that right. That is so true. And that's such a, a great point that you bring up because everybody wants to follow that society norm. Like, oh, I'm supposed to get married by this age. I'm supposed to have a family by this age. And I see it on um, some of the Facebook sites for nurse practitioners uh, where these nurse, new nurse practitioners, very young, are like, okay, so I want to have a baby, number one, at this time, and I'm going to finish grad school at this time, and I'm going to take my test, and I'm going to get my new job, and then I'm going to have baby. When do you think baby number two would be? the best time to have. And I'm just like, oh my God, I just wanted to pull my hair out. I mean, I did it all with, without having children. And, and that was a choice that happened because I never found the right partner. And also because I was like, how am I supposed to do all of that? How am I supposed to go to work for eight to 12 hours a day, leave my child, I don't know where, you know, um, expect my partner to either go pick the child up or I got to go pick it up that, you know, the stress of that is absolutely out of control. Society does not make it easy to be a mother, you know? Well, um, yeah, I, I, sometimes I call it and you know, I don't know how people feel about this, but sometimes I call it the feminist, um, the feminist backlash, like yes. part, the part that we sort of forgot was yes, you can have it all. You can do it all. You can. And it's 
it costs something. Right. Like if, if you choose to want to do it all, it's going to cost you something because you can't, you can't physically be three places at once. So I get, you want to be a master baker. You want to have a perfectly clean home. You want to entertain for holidays and, and special events. You want to have perfectly behaved children that are doing well and thriving in their community. You want them to be able to participate in sports. You still want to stay sexy in good shape so that you can please your partner, you know, whoever they are, you know, you want to look good, feel good and be healthy. And you want some alone time. Okay. <laughs> one, right? right. So it's like there are, and there, yes, there are absolutely ways to create structures so you, you can have all those things and it will cost you something. That's just the reality. You know, there's not, you can only be in so many places at one t- point in time. And so every, in every one of those points in time, you're making a choice. You just are. And so I think there's, <laughs> it's like we, women got a lot more freedom and opportunity, but we didn't let go of any of the there's no responsibility obligation that didn't kind of stick with us too. Right. So now we have both. And, and I think there's this crazy expectation that you should be able to do all of it. Right. Right. And that's a whole, I mean, you talk about that's a whole other show. And, but that was an interesting, <laughs> it was an interesting aspect of what you're talking about of women. I knew that cho- chose not to have children um, for, because they had such ambition or they had something that they were so passionate about that they, they're like, I don't know how I thrive at this thing and thrive at being a mother. Like I could be a mother, but I couldn't be as good at that as I am as this thing that I want for a living, you know? And the other thing I heard from a lot of them is how much they felt judged about that, that people, that what they should care about more than anything else is family. Yes. And I, I, and that's how my brands came to very much like you. That's how my brands and my shows came to be because I remember when I first got divorced, I was very young. I was like in my early or late twenties going into my thirties and people, I would see people at parties. They're like, Oh, you're still single. Oh, you're still (laughs) single. And, And I was just getting into grad school and figuring out, okay, um, I went through all of that and now is I was really going through like, what is it that I want to do? You know, what, what do I want to pursue? And, uh, and, and so then I got the idea. I was like, oh yeah, notoriously single girl. So that became many years later, uh, when I finally got the courage to launch my blog, it became my blog, yeah. you know, and, um, now is opening up to other things. And, um, but yeah, I I mean, sometimes you have to go through, uh, it's the hero's journey, you know? Yeah, Uh, it really is, isn't it? And it is, you know, if you choose to have kids, I think it's great. I love kids. I've worked with them for 25 years as a pediatric nurse practitioner. I love, absolutely love the population. I'm in places, kids will come up to me and give me hugs out of nowhere (laughs) and stuff. And it's great, you know, but I never had that I need to have a baby, you know, and I see that of people and I was like, okay, do you even know what you're getting into? Cause it's a lot of work, you know, and I've worked from, uh, you know, I've worked as the baby nurse, um, in deliveries, you know, watching children be born. I've been in the neonatal intensive care with the preemie babies that are, shouldn't be born, but sometimes are. And a lot of them do, make it and come out as really great human beings, you know, healthy and everything. And a lot of them don't. So that's, that's a lot to consider when you're having a child, you know? Well, and especially, you know, like for us, so it's not in my show because it's, I didn't want to get on a tangent. Um, but 
I'm, I'm a multiple sclerosis patient. I think you know that, that I'm an MS patient. And for women with MS, having, starting a family is a complicated thing anyway, because there are no medications that are safe that you can take while you are trying or while you are pregnant for MS. So that's part one. So you have to be off your medication for a certain period of time before you can start to try. Okay. So that's what we did. And then if you run into problems getting pregnant, if you encounter that you have other things going on that make it difficult for you to get pregnant, it just is extending the amount of time you're leaving this disease untreated. Oh, wow. And that would be true of so many conditions that people have that it's like, you're making a choice. And there's even some medications I know that men take for conditions they deal with, that if they're taking that, they, they shouldn't reproduce either. Right. So it's not just unique to this, but so every month that would go by that I wasn't pregnant was one more month that I wasn't treating my MS. Oh, wow. The other thing, the other thing about multiple sclerosis is typically when a woman, deli- ironically during pregnancy, women with MS do great because MS is an autoimmune disorder. When you're pregnant, your immune system is suppressed to protect the growing fetus, right? right? Uh So you feel great. (laughs) But after delivery, your wonky immune system goes into high gear and very likely women have um, really bad relapses with their MS. And sometimes some of those disabilities don't recover. Like you can end up in a wheelchair, you can end up losing some sight, you can end up losing mobility in a limb. Um, So here we are, like month after month after month going through, you know, discovering what's going on with my fertility and the issues we're having getting pregnant, da, 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 and the clock is ticking and we know it, you know, and at the same time I'm thinking, okay, so if we manage to get, so let's say that we manage to solve the fertility problem and I get pregnant and deliver a baby, how's it going to be for my husband? If his new, his, he has a brand new baby and a wife in a wheelchair. Oh my God. Yeah. Or a brand new baby and a wife that can't see and can't go to work anymore even from home. Cause at that time I had set myself up to work from home planning that that's how that was going to go. Right. Like you just, there's, there were so many variables and it was funny. It's like, until I ran into trouble getting pregnant, I had never really stopped to ask myself, why does it matter to me to be a mom? Yes. I love kids. Yes. I love my husband, but what, what for me does it fulfill to be a mom? So that was the first question. And the second question is a huge question. And I don't think a lot of women ask themselves that. No, it's just, it's the next thing on a to-do list for so many people. And I don't, I'm not saying like shame on you. It's the next thing to do because it's so natural. Like it's so natural to just follow those instincts and and keep moving like everybody. It's what everybody does. Um, But it wasn't until I had trouble that I had to ask myself that question because I knew in reality I could be setting myself up for some pretty big problems for all of us. Right. So it was, um, quite the journey. And that's, and again, that's, I, in the show, I kept wanting to encourage an inquiry into what is motivating the want to create family and the want specifically to have children so that whatever choice somebody makes, they can just own it. That, and if they, if they know what it's going to cost, if they know what, you know, what's going to, um, be lost or gained and, and why then either way, there will be joy either like me, they get to a point where my, and my husband arrived at being complete with not having children and like complete and fulfilled and not aching for or regretting right. or by the same token, like I have a really good friend. I wish I could say her name out loud, but I can't, she and her husband have been going through some stuff and she is now pregnant with twins. Oh, that's awesome. And I am so happy with her because she went through the aisle of the needle and came out really clear that for her 
having a family was worth whatever it took for her. Like she was so clear that her self-expression was to be a mom. And that those are the people I want having children. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody who's like, I'm going to be a mom. And it goes the same to a friend of mine who an incredible um, solo artist named Heather Keller. Uh, I don't know if you saw Chemo Barbie. Yeah. Chemo Barbie. I went to her show. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they, they, adopted. they just, yeah, they adopted and yeah. it's incredible because she, you know, after all her chemo, she couldn't have children of her own and she and her husband went through the inquiry too. And now they have a beautiful little girl. So it's, there, there is no right answer. There's just your answer. And I just want to encourage as many open, honest and supportive conversations as we can possibly create so that people feel um, held on to and loved as they make those choices for themselves, you know? It's so true. I mean, being a parent is huge, is huge. There's so many, I mean, it's, it's life-changing. There's so many responsibilities, you know, and I went through that inquiry too. I think um, after I got divorced, I think that was the hardest for me uh, because I was working in uh, postpartum. I remember at Hoke Hospital on a contract and it was really, really hard uh, to see new families, you know, new babies and stuff like that when you're oh. going through divorce. So that was, that was really tough. Um, but then I, I don't know, I just got over the hump. And I just started to see and I go, well, what is the most uh, important thing for me? You know, because I did get my nurturing out with my patients, you know, so, um, you know, I wasn't missing that aspect of really having a child. And I looked at my world and I said, you know, I'd have to have that right guy in my life who wants to be a father, who enjoys it. And who we can parent together, you know, whether we're going to be together or apart, whatever it is, it has to be a positive environment. And that never happened, you know? Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> now I look back, you know, sometimes I have like, uh, and then I'm like, no, I'm good. You know. So <laughs> well, you know, one of my, one of the, my favorite character in my show, Infertile, asks our protagonist at one point, she says to the protagonist, Jenny, who is largely based on me, but is also a big compilation of all those interviews. But she says to Jenny, Jenny, can you imagine creating a life filled with love and contribution without having children? And that was kind of the question I had actually come to for myself when the chips were down and I was beginning to have, we were still having trouble with fertility. We were having issues around in vitro. And um, I had a relapse with my MS. We could feel a relapse beginning. And so that was kind of the question. What can I create a life full of love and contribution without having children? Could I be satisfied with that? And for me, the answer was yes. Now that isn't everybody's answer. And I get that. I get that. And in that case, there's so many great, incredible resources for that. Um, but I, but I think like you're saying for yourself, it's a, it's arriving at a place of being clear and complete with what you choose in that arena. So true. So your characters in the show, my favorite was the old woman that Gloria. Yeah. (laughs) She's awesome. (laughs) I love her. Who, who did you, Like, was she someone you knew or? You're going to love this so much. Okay. So Gloria is a real person in my life and she, she was nothing like the woman in the show in that 
the woman in the show is this wonderful, kindly, funny, older woman who gives amazing words of wisdom. Where she overlaps with the real Gloria is that Gloria always gave me amazing words of wisdom. And she was really close with me when I was going through my 20s with my first divorce. And then I was my first, hopefully my only, my divorce. And I was going through um, all these job changes and trying to start my own business. And like, there was just, I was like a hot lot of drama. And this woman was like, she was, I called her my Arizona mom. At that time, I lived in Arizona. And she kind of took me under her wing and was always there to kind of guide me through this insanity. But the difference between Gloria that I bring to life and and the real Gloria is that Gloria is so blue with her comments and can be so inappropriate. Like, it's not even funny. I chose not to introduce that part into the storytelling. I just took the parts of her that's the huge heart. Yeah. And the and the wisdom, because I didn't want people to get distracted by uh, some of the inappropriateness. <laughs> and she came to it was so great. I got to put I got to stage the show actually in Arizona before the world shut down on um, so October cool. before last on her 80th birthday. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Which is how old she was in the show. I got to do this, this show for her in Arizona. She got to be there with her daughter and a bunch of our friends and she loved it. So she did laugh. She's like, you made me much more clean. You cleaned me up real nice. She said, so. <laughs> you cleaned me up real nice. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I love, love, love how you do characters. And it reminds me of, um, my my one friend Gary, who was just on the episode before this one, uh, where we were talking about California sober. Sometimes we'll go to lunch, and he he's in he goes to AA, and he'll do the people in AA, which is <laughs> I know you're not supposed to because it's supposed to be anonymous, I mean, right? And oh I go, God, you have your own show called Anonymous, but he is hilarious he literally has me laughing and being in my pants because he can just put on the character because he could just put on the character and he does it so well and sometimes he'll be like oh I have a new one for you you know <laughs> if there's someone new that comes in but it's hilarious but we have a, a mutual friend who we don't like I guess he's just a, an acquaintance we'll call him <laughs> yeah. and we'll sometimes sit at lunch in Palm Springs and we'll be like oh let's do so and so and we'll be like doggy like him and so like we'll just go into his character, the both of us, and we'll be yeah. like <laughs> in my class, in my teaching, in in my coach, in my coaching, I would call that source of inspiration. <laughs> He's a source of inspiration oh, for your storytelling. Oh my god, it's so funny, but it's so much fun to do these characters and stuff. I mean, so how do you again? Let, let's talk a little bit about that because I believe in in um with the work that I do is that these characters are kind of in you in your subconscious, you know, and and the work that I'm doing now, which is more artistic shamanry and helping people to get their stories because sometimes we get so stuck and and what'll happen is we get triggered and we'll go back to that place in time and we'll start reliving that event in the present moment and it's really, yeah. really interesting so I've studied this quite a bit I've read many many research articles on child trauma and and how just maybe basic stuff uh, will happen and you kind of have to work it out, you know, and we kind of talked about the healing aspect of all this. And, and so can you kind of talk a, a little bit about it? Do you understand the question? Because I know with Fertile, it was just a, such a journey and you had to embody all these characters. And I think 
embodying these characters, you're kind of letting go of something or just releasing. And yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's interesting that you put it that way. Cause like when I, I think about fertile, I think about, there's a few things that jump to mind. Um, the first one is there was one meeting that I had personally with a fertility doctor here in Los Angeles. Oh, that's that, right. I remember the doctor. He was kind of an asshole. Yes. And <laughs> it, and it was so like the way he was in real life was not nearly that brash. It was a way more understated, arrogant God complex. So it was polished and looked way nicer than the way I got to perform it. But the way I got to perform it gave me so much closure around that experience that had been pretty, really traumatizing, upsetting for me. Like a really, it, it, it pushed me to do the work I needed to do to come to a decision, which is good. But he, it was vile for me. It was really upsetting. And so getting to play him as a character now, he's one of my favorite characters because I just get to let out, like put his full assery on display even though nobody knows who he is and the, you know, the way he talks doesn't sound anything like the real guy. Cause I'm not the real guy. Um, and then the fact that people would comment on how much they hate the guy, even, you know, like now, you know how I felt. Right. Um, and then the other one that strikes me is the, there's a neighborhood watch meeting where I'm meeting with other women who are new moms, because I would say one of the most difficult or challenging things when you're going through infertility and you're dealing with this choice about family planning is you get to a certain age and the majority of the people you're around are at a certain stage in life. Yes. So it's constantly around new, new moms, constantly around people who had just had babies, constantly around people who were taking their kids to, to, you know, preschool or to, you know, jumping gyms or baby sign language or whatever. And I was the only one that wasn't talking about that. So I always had this experience of no one gave a crap what was going on with me yeah. and that I had nothing to contribute in these conversations because I have nothing to contribute. I, I have no, nothing in common with them anymore. So even if we'd been friends, there was like this disconnect that happened the minute because, the, and, and rightfully so, all of their life, the, the primary focus of their life are their children. And the, it should be that person, that little person is 100% relying on you because you've got them here, right? But it's just such a disconnect and had me feeling uh, incredibly alone and incredibly different and not in a good way. Um, so the, the characters I got to bring to life there were like, it was like a way to <laughs> play out how that felt. And then in the, in the scene after that with my husband, when I'm venting about what it's like to be around women that completely disregard the fact that I'm not, I'm not in the conversation with them was so it is cathartic is the word. It was incredibly Gosh, felt yeah. good to get it out. Right. Um, and again, not to blame any of them. It's appropriate that, that their priority is their kids. It's just, if you happen to be the one friend that doesn't have any gets pretty boring over there. <laughs> yeah. At that, at that point. And, and, yeah. And, and it's great. And, it, and it's kind of, I don't know, but people are in that mindset. Like everybody needs to be the same and you're not. So something's wrong with you. And, and so exactly that's right. what society has kind of. Okay. I have to, to share it. I have to share with you the thing. And, and yeah. I know we can, I can only go like another 15 minutes, but yeah. I have to share with you the thing that made it absolutely undeniable. I was going to write this show. So here I am headed to a commercial audition and, you know, you walk into commercial audition, everybody's sitting in the waiting room and da, da, da. 
And this was a spot where there was going to be a man and a woman. They were going to create a family, husband and wife. And there's this guy there with this adorable little girl. She was probably like two and a half, maybe. And I'm the same way. I love kids and kids love me. We can play forever. We have so much fun, right? So she was like two and a half. And this guy, you could see him. He's like, okay, honey, you just got to sit because daddy, daddy's going to, they're going to call me in there. And I'm going to have to go in there and you got it. So clearly this poor guy, something had happened that he was the caretaker for the day and had to, and he was just beside himself. So as we were sitting out there, she was playing with me and talking and I was asking her her name and how she, you know, did she get yeah. to act two or is that just something? To, and so we were having this whole conversation and he looks at me, he's like, would you, I mean, is it too much to ask? I was like, no, no, go, go. I will totally, she's in good hands. I've got seven nieces. I got this. Right. And so I was like playing with, so he goes into audition and this 20 something girl that's on the couch waiting for a different room is like, oh my God, you are so good with kids. Look, she loves you. And I'm like, oh yeah. You know, I really like kids. They're, they're just the best. She goes, well, obviously you must be such a good mom. And I'm like, well, I'm like, I am not a mom. It's kind of, it's kind of a long, sad story, but, um, I just am a really great aunt. And she goes, oh, you don't have kids. I was like, like I said, I'm waiting for an audition. Keep in mind, I'm sitting and waiting to go in for an audition. Okay. So I was like, well, no, like I said, it's a really long story. It's kind of, but, but it's, it's all good. I'm all good over here. And she goes, well, you know, you should adopt. <laughs> And I'm thinking, and listen, I can't tell you how many times people have said that. And I'm thinking, and I didn't say any of this because I'm trying to keep my head straight and I've gotten a two and a half year old here and I'm going to get called in probably right after this guy. Right. So I just said to her, I go, well, maybe someday. But what I was thinking was like, girl, she doesn't know my name. She doesn't know my relationship status. She doesn't know if I'm, if I'm, I could be a daily heroin user. I could be being shut, you know, chased yeah. by the police. Like the woman has no clue who she's talking to, Yeah. but because I'm a woman of a certain age, the expectation is you should have kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I, have, I was I like, have, yeah, I have a story to counter and then we're going to wrap it up real quick. Um, I, I, so I, I was working at children's hospital and, uh, I would do these triathlons. So I had to train and, uh, one day I would ride my bike from Burbank to the 24 hour fitness in Toluca or in, in wherever it was. And it was about seven miles. I would swim about half a mile to a mile and then seven miles back home, right on my bike. And so one day I'm taking my bike out and I had woken up at four 30 in the morning to go into work. And yeah, so I worked my eight hours at children's hospital in surgical admitting, checking in kids for their uh, anesthesia and stuff and clearing them. And uh, so I'm here and one of my neighbors is out there and she was young at the time, early twenties with her one-year-old son, you know, in his little carriage. And um, so I said hello to her, you know, and I always remarked this kid had green, beautiful eyes, you know, and I would always remark how cute he was. And she goes, you're so lucky as I'm, I'm like walking by her and I go, excuse me. She goes, you're so lucky. You don't have to watch kids. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, you don't even know me. I go for your information. I woke up at four 30 this morning to watch other people's kids who were sick and might not even make it from their surgeries, you know? Um, and now I'm doing, going to train for a triathlon for children's cancer research. Really? <laughs> What's like 
I mean, it's like, like, you know, and I told her you should be, you know, you should be grateful that your child is healthy and, and you get to sit out here and this is all you have to do is sit out here with him. How amazing is that? You know, (laughs) be grateful for what you have. Yeah, boy. Amen on that. Right. So awesome. But anyway, your show again, it's going to be at the white fire theater, right? I'm going, we're doing an encore. We're doing an encore live stream performance. So that means anybody anywhere can tune in and it's at 7 PM on May 20th. And that's Pacific standard time tickets. You can get at fertileconversation.com. Um, and the cool thing about that is the live stream link is actually live for 72 hours once the show starts. So if you can't make it right at seven, you can't watch it that night at seven, you have 72 hours after that to the link will still be alive. So if you, if you have to schedule it a day out, um, and then I'm also offering something really cool in partnership with uh, my director, Jessica Lynn Johnson, we're doing, uh, we're calling a break, a breakthrough brunch for solo performers. What we're going to do is on Sunday morning, let me make sure that I'm not losing my mind about the date here because it's after the performance. I believe it's the 23rd, 23rd. Yes. It's going to be at, mm -hmm, it's going to be at 11 AM on May 23rd. We're going to do a fertile brunch workshop via zoom where we're going to use fertile as a template to break down solo performance writing and technique to talk about the different devices that I use, the way that you create characters, the way you transition between characters, um, how you can support yourself with that, with your writing. And what happens if you come to the brunch, it's $25 for the brunch. And then that includes a ticket for the streaming link that you can watch the 72 hours before so that you have time to watch the show and then use it to take notes or whatever. And then you can come. So if somebody's thinking about creating a solo show from some story that they have want to tell, it could be a really great way to um, chime in. And in the last 30 minutes, um, Jess is going to come on to answer questions. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome. And I'll put both of those links at the end of the show notes. And um, I'll also send it out on my email. That's uh, awesome. uh, So for the brunch, they should email, if they want the brunch, they should email um, soaring solo artist, soaring solo artist at gmail.com. And then we can send you the link to get the tickets for the brunch and the show in one. Awesome. Well, it's been such a fun discussion. And I'm also going to offer continuing education units for any nurses who are watching this. Oh, uh, so it's also educational. All right. So cool. Any last words? Just to say thank you. Thank you for, you know, thank you for being, first of all, speaking on behalf of those people that work in healthcare and and bringing a new, fresh, entertaining point of view to something that is so important and has been so critical and giving an outlet for that and for standing for the expression of creatives out here. You know, we don't, we don't, people just don't get enough credit for the work it takes to choose to stay in the creative world and to keep creating, keep generating new work and getting in communication with people and marketing yourself. So it means a lot that you've created this platform so that people can share what they're up to. So I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. And I'm so thankful that you remembered me. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks again, nurses and hypochondriacs till next time. And make sure you go see Heather's show for it all. It is awesome. I, I love it. Like, look, I watched it a year ago. I still remember those characters. That's how memorable mm. her acting is and how powerful it was. 
you know, because those Thank were you. the two main ones that I remembered the doc. I was like, oh yeah, he was an asshole. He's <laughs> such a dick. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. We love your support and we love our listeners. If you have some spare change, go ahead and throw some to us on our Venmo at Nurses and Hypocon. Also, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love that. And if you'd like to be a guest, go ahead and send us an email at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. <laughs>